So, Paul, you've been in Kelowna for about seven years, yep. I think. Tell us how you got to Kelowna. So uh, I've been a faculty member at uh, UBC Okanagan for seven years. And before that, I was a faculty member at the University of Oregon down in the States for 15 years. Um, but I'm originally from Canada. I grew up um, in Cornell in central BC and then did my undergrad and a master's at UBC Vancouver, a PhD at the University of Calgary. And then I was in Europe for a few years uh, doing postdoctoral research and then eventually wound up in Oregon um, and then made my way here. Was it a job offer to work at the university that attracted you to Kelowna? And um, did you know about Kelowna before you came here? Yeah, it was a job that I applied for. I knew... Um, uh, yeah, you know, some of the people that were at UBC Okanagan already just from um, my past uh, work. And so um, when I heard about the, the fact that it was becoming UBCO, I started making inquiries and then a job became available that I applied for and I was fortunate enough um, to get. So tell us about your uh, studies. What did you take in school and did it change much from undergrad to master's to PhD? Yes, is the short answer to that. Um, so I'm interested in how the brain works or doesn't work to control movement. Um, so it's sensory motor control is the area of study. Um, and I've used a variety of tools and techniques over the years. And um, for the past 10 or 15 years, I've been interested in um, traumatic brain injury. So when a person gets a concussion, for example, um, what happens in terms of their ability to control movement and other uh, factors related to how the brain functions um, after that injury. And then for the past couple of years, I've been collaborating with my partner, Karen Mason from the Colonial Women's Shelter, looking at traumatic brain injury and survivors of intimate partner violence, which is a completely understudied area right now. So tell us briefly, how does uh, brain injuries reflect um, reflect in a person's demeanor and behavior. Yeah, the, the kind of clinical anecdote is if you've seen one concussion or brain injury, you've seen one concussion or brain injury. So it can be different in, in, from one person to the next. The main um, symptom in a, in a sports-related concussion, for example, are things like headache, difficulty concentrating, being in a fog. Sometimes you can get sensory um, deficits like um, ringing in the ears or dizziness. Um, and so it can, the main kind of outcome is it can be debilitating um, and, um, and it's, it's a difficult injury to diagnose. You can't make a x-ray and see that a person has a brain injury unless it's a very severe one and then you don't really need the x-ray because they have a lot of other deficits but with something more minor like a sports concussion quite often it's really hard to tell that they've had the injury but they know that something's not right so how do you tell with a sports injury i guess there's a series of tests they have to go through tell us like basically the process before you can say okay conclusively that's what's happening. So the main two things that happen are that um, within the context of at least contact sports like hockey and football, you can quite often see the injury happen. So a player gets hit and they're uh, maybe knocked out on the ice potentially, although they don't have to be unconscious. They have difficulty getting to their feet or, you know, dizzy or um, unstable in terms of their balance. 
um, you can ask a series of questions fairly quickly and do some uh, fairly quick um, kind of sideline assessments to ask them, you know, what day is it? Where are you? <laughs> What's happening? I mean, if they don't answer those questions really, really quickly, um, then you can suspect that they've probably suffered a concussion. So then you can do follow-up testing uh, that's more detailed, sometimes using uh, a computer to do uh, neuropsychological assessments of things like attention and concentration and memory. Um, so it's those combinations, those uh, series of tools that you use to make the diagnosis. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, a lot of people have a misconception about sports injuries and concussions. Um, I believed when I was younger that a concussion comes from a direct blow to the head only, but um, it's true that a very strong body check, for example, in hockey, where that head is not contacted directly could also create a concussion. Is that true? Yeah. So you can get a hit to the body um, that decelerates your body and your head on top of your body will continue to move right. and your brain within your head will also continue to move until it comes to a stop. So in those cases, your head and your brain don't get directly impacted, but they the, the forces that are transmitted to your body get transmitted mm -hmm. into your brain. Same thing happens, for example, in a car accident, a head-on collision where um, you know, the seatbelt restrains you, so your body stops, but your head keeps on moving. Right. And so that deceleration is the key injury mechanism there. How bad is it in sports? Uh, and is it mostly football and hockey where we see these injuries, or is it all kinds of sports? Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's 10 to 15 to 20% in contact sports each year will end up getting a concussion. Um, so it's really high. Um, in other sports, soccer, um, uh, women's lacrosse is really bad because um, they don't uh, wear protective gear. Um, uh, volleyball, basketball, you can get, um, you know, incidental contact that can lead to uh, a concussion. So it's definitely more prevalent um, kind of on a, on a per capita basis in things like um, uh uh, hockey and football because contact is part of the game. It's mm -hmm. it's a it's an allowed part of the game. Um, obviously, we're better now at uh, constraining it somewhat so that you know boarding, for example, hitting from behind um, in football don't hit a defenseless player. And so, new rules have come into effect in the last few years that have reduced the incidence of it. Um, on a kind of per exposure basis, it's surprising that, that sports like soccer and like I said, women's lacrosse, um, cheerleading is another one where, um, you know, especially the, the female cheerleaders are getting thrown all over the place and sometimes they miss the, <laughs> the landings, right? And, and, um, and so they can result in a concussion. Um, so those sports are ones where the kind of amount of practice or the amount of time that you do relative to the amount of injuries that occur are actually relatively high, even though the actual absolute numbers of people getting concussions are not that large. So your work, are you um, mainly researching and bringing awareness or are there ways to treat concussions? Like tell us about what, what you do at the university. Uh, the main work we're doing is uh, lab-based assessments of uh, concussions. So we're looking at... Um, 
better objective means of determining that a concussion has occurred. So right now, um, really the kind of best clinical practice is you see the injury happen and then you do assessments of a person's symptoms, ask them about a headache, ask them about um, dizziness or nausea, for example. And that can, there can be biases introduced in those subjective reports, right? So a young hockey player who doesn't want to, you know, wants to keep on playing, when you ask them, oh, have you got a headache? Do you feel dizzy? They'll say, no, I'm fine. I mean, not all the time, but sometimes people will do that if they want to keep on playing. The converse, for example, is someone who has a potentially a workplace injury or a car accident, and you ask them, do you still have a headache or do you still feel nauseous or dizzy from your brain injury? They could say, yep, absolutely. And because it's subjective, you don't know for sure, right? And that may be used in, in litigation. And so... Most concussion research and brain injury research is aimed at trying to be trying to come up with tests that are more objective in terms of um, whether the injury happened and how the person is recovering from the injury over time. Um, can a concussion always be cured? Yes, uh, most of the time recovery occurs. Um, they say about eighty-five to ninety percent of people that get a mild concussion, say in the context of a hockey game or a soccer game. Um, will be fine within about a week to 10 days. There's what they're calling in the literature the silent minority, which are people that suffer from what's called post-concussion syndrome. Mm -hmm. So these are people that have lingering deficits, sometimes you know weeks, months, years after the injury. And so they'll end up having those symptoms that just keep on sticking with them. Um, the, you asked me before about what's the treatment. Um, the kind of... Um, current uh, kind of traditional clinical treatment is rest, complete cognitive and physical rest. And for the past 10 or 15 years or so, that's been kind of the mantra of anyone that treats someone with a concussion is go home and rest. Don't use your brain. Don't think too much. Um, and that's starting to be rethought now. Um, it turns out that if you take someone who hasn't had a concussion and you tell them, go home, sit in a dark room and don't do anything for a week, they end up feeling not so good after that time, right? So it's maybe not the best treatment. It's worse than the disease in this or the injury. Um, and so there's some recent research that's looked at the idea of active physical rehabilitation. So moderate physical activity on an exercise bike or a treadmill, for example, to um, kind of reset some of the physiology in the brain. Um, and that's been shown to actually be quite effective. Mm -hmm. So a lot of sports concussion specialists now are rethinking what to do in terms of rehabilitation and, and to include the physical component, actually sometimes within a, a day or two after the injury. What is a concussion? Like what, what is actually happening? I understand that uh, you talked about velocity or impact and the brain is crashing against the skull basically. And, uh, and what happens to the brain? Like, what is, what is the cause of these symptoms? It's maybe a little bit too simple to say it's crashing against the inside of the skull. It's probably the m more uh, realistic thing to say is that the brain is rotating and twisting. Mm -hmm. It doesn't absolutely have to hit the inside of the skull. And in fact, if it does, you probably end up with a brain contusion, which can be a more severe, um, uh, result in more severe injury. So just the the twisting and the shearing of the brain tissue. 
um, leads to the injury itself. So it's the, it's the deceleration and the rotation of the brain within the skull that is the mechanical um, impetus for the injury. Um, and so that leads to those tissues not working, not doing, not being able to do their function as well. So right. if you think about what those tissues are, well, it's neurons, which carry all the signals. It's astrocytes, which are another form of brain cell, which basically provides support to the neurons. And then it's the cerebral vasculature, the blood supply into the brain. And so in each case, when those tissues get damaged or disrupted, they're not able to do what they normally do. So neurons, their normal job is to carry signals from one part of the brain to the other. Right. It's how we think, it's how we perceive, it's how we move, it's everything. And so um, if you think about just the simple act of reaching out and picking up your coffee cup, that requires really exquisite, precise timing of tens of thousands, if not millions of neurons, all working in a coordinated fashion to get the muscles of our arm and hand to be coordinated right. um, to make that movement and be successful in terms of picking up that coffee cup. So if a bunch of those neurons are now no longer firing properly or they're doing so less consistently, then the act of doing that becomes more of a challenge. Right. Um, and so you get a little bit slower at it or sluggish at it or less accurate at it. And that applies to all the different functions in the brain because basically the whole brain is affected yeah. by it. Um, some of the work that we're doing at, at UBCO looks at the cerebral vascular side of things. So the blood flow into the brain, because again, these are tissues that are going to be exposed to the force and potentially disrupted in terms of their function. Yeah. Now the blood supplies oxygen and glucose and nutrients to the neurons to be able to do their job. So if the blood supply is disrupted, then the ability to feed the neurons so that they can do their job is also going to be disrupted. And so some of the research we've been doing the last few years has shown that that's indeed the case, that mm -hmm. the blood flow into the brain isn't working as normally as it as it would. And so you get symptoms that, um, that result from that that are consistent with the brain injury. Luke Mankus is a realtor with Remax Kelowna. He loves what he does. We asked Luke if he had any regrets about moving here in 2011. And he always says, yeah one regret, and that is he didn't move here sooner. When Luke came here, he didn't know anyone. He didn't know the neighborhoods or anything or anyone besides his daughter, who was six years old at the time. So he knows what it's like. Now he's an expert and has helped well over 100 single people, couples, families, and investors with their real estate needs in the Okanagan. If you're new to our beautiful city, Luke can help you get connected with great lawyers, dentists, carpenters, landscapers, swimming pool installers, you name it. And whether you're new to Kelowna or not, Luke knows real estate. He can help you find a great property, negotiate a good deal, and hold your hand all the way through the process until the day you get your shiny new set of keys. Luke is known as a no-pressure kind of guy. He's had clients where it took even a year or more to get them into a property. He just doesn't believe in rushing things. On the other hand, when you decide it's time to act, he's diligent, and he'll work day and night until the job is done. Give Luke make us a call or a text message at any time, 778-215-4273. Again, that's 778-215-4273, 778-215-4273 to chat with Luke about real estate.
just going back to what you said, the previous way of thinking that um, even mental activity could be harmful and we're getting away from that kind of thinking. What was the rationale? Like what, what did um, doctors think would happen if you exerted your mental faculties too strenuously after a concussion? I mean, I think this, it's the same principle as, you know, you sprain your ankle, you don't go out and go for a long run right afterwards, right? You rest it, you, you put, um, you rest it, you put ice on it, you compress it and you elevate it, right? Those are the, the RICE acronym. Um, so it's, it's analogous to that. And yeah, mental activity, just thinking, you know, I think a lot of young athletes go, oh, I got a concussion. I'll just go and play video games for a couple of days. And well, no, because that's an incredible mental stress. Um, it uses a lot of different neurons that are potentially injured. Um, so I think the idea was that you need to rest those right. tissues in order for them to recover. And most of it was probably based on um, uh, there's animal models of brain injury where an injury is induced and you can go in and actually look at the extent of the damage in the, in the brain of these um, you know, mice or rats typically. And um, but those injuries and the ways in which they're induced tend to be a lot more severe than what happens in a, a kid who gets a, you know, hit hard in a, in a hockey game, for example. And so it's maybe not uh, fair to draw the analogy between some of the things that were being seen in some of the animal models versus what happens in, to humans in everyday life. So this newer idea of, yeah, take a day, maybe two days off, and then start introducing some physical activity to the extent that you can tolerate it. One of the things that happens when someone who's had a concussion participates in physical activity is their symptoms actually tend to get a little bit worse. So right. let's say their headache might um, start to get a bit worse if they get on an exercise bike and ride for 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and so in these new protocols, they're talking about doing moderate exercise that pushes it a little bit, but right. not so much that the person starts to feel a lot worse. Right. And so, and the idea is that you just do that over and over, over the course of a few weeks. And um, like I said, there's some good evidence that it's actually pretty effective in terms of recovery happening more quickly. And maybe more importantly, in people that have post-concussion syndrome where the symptoms have lingered, actually getting over that and getting reductions in those symptoms or actually being free of those symptoms after a month or so of this, this moderate activity. Would it be sort of analogous to someone spraining their ankle and you want to rest for a while, but eventually need some physiotherapy and need to start getting blood flowing to that area so it can heal? Because if you just rest forever, it's, it's never going to heal. So there is a period of rest, but you yeah. want to put some strain on it uh, gradually over time. Is that kind of similar? Exactly, exactly right. If you sprain your ankle and then you never use your, uh, you know, the muscles about your ankle again, you're going to get atrophy and, and you're going to, you know, pretty soon have trouble moving your ankle joint. Um, so yes, anyone who's gone through any sort of orthopedic surgery or um, any sort of injury to the, to the joints will know that, yes, you have to immobilize it probably for some period of time, let that initial healing take place, but then get into the therapy, which can quite often be quite painful, right? Yeah. Because you're rebuilding the strength and, and the functionality of that joint. So it, it's quite analogous to that with the brain as well. So your partner, Karen Mason, with the Cologne Home Women's Shelter, told me that uh, you guys are doing work together. Yeah. And that surprised me when I heard about it. 
So I said I would ask you about it. So how does your work relate to the Colonial Women's Shelter? So, yeah, this is a project that we've been working on for a couple of years now. Um, and it uh, kind of was catalyzed by an editorial that uh, Karen came across in the L.A. Times, which was uh, from a... Um, uh, ED at a women's shelter down in Phoenix who described um, uh, basically the challenges that her own mother faced in an abusive relationship and many of the symptoms that her mother had that looked a lot like what you see um, in athletes who get concussions and in particular in, uh, uh, um, you know, um, ex-football uh, players and hockey players who've played contact sports for a long time and have difficulties later in life in terms of their mental function and, and some of the challenges they have with personality. So the, 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 um, the resulting um, syndrome has been called chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. And um, there's some very good evidence that a lot of former football and hockey players who've been exposed to a lot of head impacts are likely suffering from CTE. And so um, the, drawing the analogy between what happens in players who play a contact sport and in survivors of intimate partner violence, where quite often the head is the target of the violence, it, it kind of makes a light bulb go off and go, oh, yeah, of course, this may be some of the same things that are uh, happening uh, chronically in former football players and hockey players might be happening in women who've experienced intimate partner violence. And so um, we started talking about it and uh, you know, I started looking in, in the research literature to see if anything had been done. And the short answer is not very much has been done. Um, there's a researcher at Harvard named Eve Le uh, Valera who uh, has done a few studies on this. And I've had some wonderful conversations with her over the last couple of years just to talk through how she goes about doing that research and um, how, how she goes about in terms of uh, approaching and answering the questions of what are the impacts of potential traumatic brain injuries in this population. So it's certainly a different population than young contact sport athletes who might have one concussion. Um, typically, uh, um, survivors of intimate partner violence have been exposed to um, um, likely head impacts that result in symptoms many, many times. Um, and so it's challenging because uh, just like with in sports concussion, objectively measuring whether a concussion has occurred is difficult. It's challenging because in sports concussion, usually there's someone there to witness the right. injury, whereas in the privacy of someone's home, in intimate partner violence situation, typically there is no one right. present, or maybe the kids are present. Um, and it's, it's horrible to think about these things, but it's, it is a reality. Yeah. And then the other aspect that is probably different as well is that there's a lot that goes along with intimate partner violence in terms of things like post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, potential substance use to deal with the, mm -hmm. the challenges that are imposed by being in that context that typically aren't present in young hockey and football players, right? right. Absolutely, sometimes uh, kids who get sports concussions will have emotional consequences of it. And it's, you know, think about, you know, you might be totally into hockey or football and then you get this injury that makes it challenging if not impossible to participate in that sport for some period of time that can be depressing that can induce some emotional disturbances 
Um, so it's not to minimize the impact in that context, but I think in the context of intimate partner violence, there's a lot of other things going on that, that um, because of that, we have to take account of those. So there are measures, clinical measures that we can do that look at things like post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use and anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. So we uh, take them into account in terms of trying to characterize how much of the deficits and the symptoms that we're seeing are due specifically to the potential traumatic brain injury as opposed to any sort of emotional disturbances the person might have. Right. So it's, um, it's work that's not being done very much anywhere. Um, you know, when I talk to my um, traumatic brain injury and concussion research colleagues uh, across Canada about this research, they all go, oh, yes, of course, this is <laughs> something that we need to also be studying because it's, it's just as important, if not more so, than looking at it in the context of hockey or football. And to be clear, like you said, with sports injuries, it could be not necessarily a direct impact to the skull, but like being thrown hard into a wall type thing by, you know, where you hit, hit your shoulders, but your head keeps moving yep. and that could create concussions as well. So um, bringing awareness to the topic is excellent. Uh, are there treatments uh, for people who have these long-term effects from concussions and um, can these be applied to victims of domestic partner abuse as well? Yeah. Um, again, it's early days. Absolutely. Uh, certainly in terms of our own research, the main thing that we're focusing on is just the characterization of the incidents and, and the actual kind of, uh, you know, direct measurements of the traumatic brain injury. Um, another piece that we're working on is, like you say, increasing awareness and knowledge. Yeah. So right now, at places like the Kelowna Women's Shelter, the staff aren't trained and, and don't have the tools at their disposal to be able to ask questions around traumatic brain injury and do referrals uh, to brain injury specialists that uh, could help their clients. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's another piece that we're um, looking at is actually translating the knowledge that we're generating in the lab into tools and resources that can be used like at places like the women's shelter. In terms of you know, what can be done about it, um, in terms of interventions and rehabilitation, I think you know, in the longer term, um, referring clients to uh, um, brain injury specialists, neural rehabilitation um, that occurs in the community anyway for people that have brain injury from other um, um, sources is probably the way to go. Um, that's absolutely part of the mandate of places like the Women's Shelter is to get their clients uh, going to and making use of resources that can help them as they try to transition to a life free from abuse. Do you um, publish any of these studies publicly? Absolutely. It's <laughs> you publish or perish in academia, as they right. say. So um, right now we've only we're only a year into the study where we are just about to submit our first paper, um, looking just at the symptoms that we're seeing and comparing it to what we see in, in the contact sport athletes. Um, but over the next year or so, we'll probably be submitting quite a few other papers looking at all the other measures that we're making. 
and then um, and then like I say a part of uh, uh, another piece of the work is this translating of that knowledge into into things that can actually be used in the in community organizations like the colonial women's shelter yeah. so that's we'll probably publish papers on that process as well but in many ways it's the tools and the awareness raising that are almost more important in terms of the long-term well-being of the clients. Can you tell us, um, as the data starts coming in from the women's shelter, and um, I don't know if you're getting data from other women's shelters around the country or, or if it's just this one, but were you surprised uh, at the, uh, the data that's coming in? Yeah. Um, so I think the, probably the most surprising thing um, right off the bat was basically all of the participants that we've had come through the women's shelter um, and, and be in our study have symptoms that are consistent with traumatic brain injury. Wow. All of them, right? Wow. Um, <laughs> now, that's not all of the clients. Obviously, we only have a subset of those clients, but still, um, it's it's remarkable and scary that, um, you know, it's so prevalent in this, um, you know, part of the population that finds themselves in this context. Um, and that seems to go along with some of the changes in terms of brain function itself, which are very similar to what we see um, in contact sport athletes. So it's, it's, it's definitely happening in this population is this kind of simple thing to say. And um, probably the, the more important part of it will be what do we do with this information? How do we help improve the setting and the context so that uh, women who've experienced intimate partner violence can get the help they need. Just to dig a little bit deeper, is um, is it fairly easy to get concussion-like symptoms from physical abuse? Like, it, it, or is it? Does it have to be, you know, a severe throwing into the wall or a hard punch to the head, or is it fairly easy to get um, concussions? from partner abuse? Yeah, I mean, I, we don't have direct data on that, but I think um, certainly we, when you know we asked them, well, what was the mechanism, what happened right. in these episodes that led to this outcome? And those are the exact things that uh, the, the participants will report. Like another aspect that doesn't happen in a sporting setting is um, strangulation. Mm -hmm. So uh, quite often that's used as a means to, um, you know, uh, to 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 implement intimate partner violence, and so um, that's a different uh, way to injure the brain. I guess is one way to look at it. Um, you know, you're cutting off the blood supply and therefore the oxygen to the brain, and that's potentially has different outcomes. Um, but in the big scheme of things, the impact is the same. It's just not from a mechanical force. Instead, it's from cutting off the blood supply. Well, um, Paul, thank you so much for bringing awareness to this and for all the work you're doing. And I agree with you. Uh, awareness is the first step because then um, uh, other professors and doctors and researchers are going to uh, hopefully find better treatments for this phenomenon, which is um, very common in sports. And I think as a society, we're just kind of becoming aware of it in the last 10, 15 years of um, I hear they've done autopsies on NFL players after they've passed away, and this is very, very common. Um, so thank you for bringing awareness to this issue. Uh, would you like to nominate someone to come on the show in the future? Sure. I'd like to nominate um, Deanna Kent, 
Um, okay. She's a author, used to work at um, um, Disney Club Penguin and uh, her and her partner um, have just released a book uh, for um, young adults and uh, it's a fantastic story and I think she'd be a great guest and she's lived in Kelowna a long time. Paul, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for the opportunity.